What do you do when one set of undeniable facts lead you to a conclusion that seems to be contradictory to another set of undeniable facts? I mean, both conclusions are obviously true, and you can see them individually how they are true, but when you put them together and you try to see how they respond to each other, it doesn't seem possible that they can be true together and at the same time. Well, modern physics is confronted with just such a dilemma. In its study of light, there seems to be a contradiction at play. Traditional theories suggest that atomic and subatomic matter consists of either particles or waves. And yet, when light is studied and tried to be considered and understood about how it works, it seems like it is both waves and particles. The evidence for that is overwhelming, even though it seems physically impossible. In 1938, Albert Einstein confronted this dilemma and he wrote about it. And this is part of what he said. It seems as though we must use sometimes the one theory and sometimes the other, while at times we may use either. We are faced with a new kind of difficulty. We have two contradictory pictures of reality. Separately, neither of them fully explains the phenomenon of light, but together they do. We find similar difficulties whenever we read the Bible and try to take seriously all that it says, refusing to compromise any of the things that we find there. For example, the Scripture teaches us that God is not man, and man is not God. There's God, and then there's everything else that is not God. God is infinite. He has no beginning. But man is finite and has a beginning. God is the creator, and yet people are his creatures. We all have a time when, when we were not. And yet you cannot say that about God. And so it seems like there's a contradiction to claim that Jesus is both God and man, because it seems like he must be either God or man. But God, with whom all things are possible, reveals in the Scripture that indeed, in Jesus Christ, full divinity is joined with full humanity. And though our minds are tempted to say he's either man or God, Scripture says he's God incarnate. He's God in flesh. He's the God-man. So we believe, without compromise, the full deity and the full humanity of Jesus. We face the same kind of challenge when we come to the Bible. Is the Bible a divine book? Or is it a human book? Was it written by God? Or was it written by people? Again, our finite minds immediately want to answer the question in an either-or fashion. It's got to be one or the other, but the Scripture tells us it's both. So Paul writes in 2 Timothy that all Scripture is breathed out by God. And Peter tells us in 2 Peter chapter 1 that holy men who are taught by the Holy Spirit are the ones who 
gave us the Scripture. In chapter 3 of 2 Peter, he goes on to say that Paul wrote some of the Scripture. And in that passage, he says some of the things that Paul wrote are hard to understand. And so we have Scripture saying that God wrote it and that people wrote it. And so we conclude that this is a divine book and a human book. It appears to be a contradiction, and yet it's not. J.I. Packer calls such apparent contradictions in the Bible antinomies, anti-laws, opposing principles, things that give the impression that they just cannot be held together. And yet, they're both taught, and therefore they both must be regarded as true. This morning, in our continued study of Romans chapter 9, we're going to be confronted with the Bible's most profound antinomy, with a teaching that comes to us in two truths that to our mind may appear contradictory, but which are both taught in Scripture. Specifically, we're going to be confronted with God's absolute unqualified sovereignty and mankind's unqualified, absolute responsibility. Our text is Romans chapter 9, verses 19 through 23. Romans 9, 19 through 23. What we're going to see is the Apostle Paul entertaining another objection to his teachings about God's sovereign grace. In verses 6 through 13, which we've already studied, Paul reminds us that God sovereignly chose Abraham out of all the people on earth at that time. And then he sovereignly chose Abraham's son Isaac, not Abraham's son Ishmael. Then he sovereignly chose Isaac's son Jacob, not Jacob's twin brother Esau, to receive the blessing of salvation. And in each of these choices, we find the sovereignty of God manifested. In other words, there wasn't anything in Abraham... Nothing in Isaac, nothing in Jacob that God saw and responded to that caused him, that made him grant them grace in salvation. He did what he did as the sovereign ruler for reasons that are ultimately known only to himself. And as we saw last week, looking at verses 14 through 18, in doing so, God acted with complete justice. There is no injustice with God. Today, in verses 19 through 23, we're going to see that God's sovereignty and giving grace in no way eliminates our responsibility to obey Him or to comply with His requirements. So please get a copy of God's Word in front of you. I want you to actually look at the words of Scripture as we walk through them. Chapter 9 of Romans, verses 19 through 23. If you're using one of the Bibles that's provided for you in the chair in front of you, you'll find this on page 945. I'm going to begin reading in verse 19, but I want to read all the way down through verse 29. We're not going to follow all of Paul's argument, but I want you to hear the rest of his argument so that we can see the context of what he's saying in our primary text. So hear the word of God as I begin reading from Romans 9, verse 19. You will say to me then, Why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what does molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, 
desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it is said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. We are completely responsible because God is completely sovereign. That's what the Apostle Paul is saying in verses 19 through 23. He does this by raising another anticipated objection to his teachings about God's sovereignty in grace. The first objection we looked at last week is voiced in verse 14. Is there an injustice with God? And he answers that objection by saying, absolutely not. It's, of course, not true. God has the right to show mercy on whomever he wants to show mercy. And he has the right to harden whomever he chooses to harden, as verse 18 states plainly. But having said that, that raises now another objection. And so Paul anticipates it and addresses it. The objection is found in verse 19. Why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? In other words, if God's really sovereign, how can he hold us responsible? The way that Paul answers this question is not by engaging in philosophical speculation, but rather by reiterating the priority and sovereignty of God. God is the greatest of all beings, the ultimate reality. He is the source of all reality, including people and our responsibilities to him as creatures that come from him. So let's look at this text together first by looking at the objection that is raised that Paul anticipates and then the answer that he gives to it. Again, the objection, verse 19, is this. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? Well, this objection has two parts to it. There's a premise, and then there's a conclusion on which the premise is built. The premise is the last part of verse 19. No one can resist God's will. God sovereignly rules over everything. That's what Paul has been talking about for several verses now in this chapter. He has stated it in so many words exactly like that in verses 15 through 18. And what Paul summarizes in those verses is taught elsewhere throughout the Scriptures, both Old and New Testaments. We hear it, for example, in Isaiah 46.10, where God says that He is the one who declares the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, I will accomplish all my purpose. If you know the story of Daniel and King Nebuchadnezzar, who is so prideful, 
looking over his vast empire and thinking how great he was, and God humbled him and turned him into a wild beast or like a wild beast for a long time. When God gave him his mind back, Daniel chapter 4 records what that once proud king of Babylon said about God. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever for His dominion is an everlasting dominion and His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing and He does according to His will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and none can stay His hand or say to Him, what have you done? In Matthew chapter 10, before Jesus sends his apostles and disciples out to preach the gospel, in verse 29, part of his comfort to them and encouragement to them is to remind them that not even a sparrow can fall to the earth apart from the will of your Father. And then in Ephesians 1.11, the apostle Paul summarizes these things by saying, in Christ we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things after the counsel of his will. So God is behind all that happens in this world. He's sovereign over all of it. Well, if that's true, then who can resist his will? If God has a purpose that infallibly will come to pass, then what does that say about you and me and our responsibility? Well, that's the premise of the complaint. The conclusion is built on it in the first part of verse 19, and Paul anticipates it by way of a rhetorical question. Why does he still find fault? And of course, the implied answer is he can't. We've got him. If this is true, this cannot be true. Why does he still blame us? If God's sovereign, do we really have a choice? Do we really have any say in how we conduct our lives day by day? If God's sovereign, how can we be held responsible for our actions? Well, let's think for a moment at what this objection that Paul raises, that Paul anticipates being raised, what it actually proves. What it proves is the accuracy of our interpretation of verses 6 through 18. Because in those verses, as we've walked through them in recent weeks, we have made the point that Paul here is setting before us the sovereignty of God's grace in salvation. And just as we saw last week in Considering the first objection that's found in verse 14, we so again recognize that this objection in verse 19 is meaningless unless God is absolutely sovereign. So if you interpret these verses in any way that mitigates the complete unqualified sovereignty of God, this objection doesn't make any sense. If God's word teaches that in any way, his omnipotence, his complete authority is limited, then why ask the question, how can he find fault? But when you read about God's sovereignty, his unqualified authority, if questions come into your mind, 
take some comfort in recognizing that you're not the only one that has those questions. And don't be afraid to take those questions to Scripture, but be sure not to turn those questions into accusations as Paul's anticipated person that he's arguing with does. Paul shows us in the answer that he gives to this objection why we must be careful never to accuse God of wrongdoing or to raise our questions in an accusatory way. It's okay to have questions, but it's not okay to bring God into the judgment seat as if he owes you an explanation. Well, let's look at the answer in verses 20 through 23. There are three parts to this answer. And I love the way that Paul does this. He starts off in verse 20 by just reminding us that we're too small to interrogate God. I mean, he answers this question with a question. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Uh, Paul wants to make sure we remember our place. That we remember that God is God and that we are not. We're creatures. We're finite. We have little pea brains. And those brains are stained by sin. So we shouldn't wonder if there are things that God reveals that we do not fully understand and do not seem to make sense to us on first reading. You know, if a, a freshman economics student were to complain against Warren Buffett and accuse him of being foolish in the way that he invests money, we'd all kind of laugh and scoff at that, wouldn't we? Warren Buffett, the last time it was made public, is worth over $100 billion through his investments. And a freshman economics student is going to stand in judgment and make accusations against him. Well, in a far more profound way, that is what is happening here. And Paul wants to make sure that we don't fall into that trap and that we back up and recognize that there are proper responses to the legitimate questions that come into our mind. As Paul says in Isaiah 55, 9, as God says, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. We must remember when we confront these types of things that are revealed to us in the Bible that are hard to understand that we are dealing with God, the God who is above us. This is certainly true as we grapple with his absolute sovereignty and our complete responsibility. Both are taught in Scripture, therefore both are true at the same time. This is simply the way that God created his world to work. And Paul demonstrates the compatibility of these two truths repeatedly in his New Testament writings. But nowhere has he done so more succinctly and clearly than in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, where he writes, admonishing us, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. We're responsible to work out our own salvation as Christians, to grow in grace, to read the Bible, to pray, to be disciplined in the way that we live our lives before Christ. It's our responsibility. Work out your salvation, Paul says. But then the reason? Because, because God's sovereign. Exercise your responsibility because God's sovereign, because He's the one who works in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. Where do you get the desire to read the Bible? God. Where do you get the ability to read the Bible? God. How do you think you got here this morning? You made plans and you went through some effort to get here. 
But those plans and that effort would never have been accomplished in your life without God. Do you see what Paul's saying? It's the same thing he's doing in Romans 9. Is that he's teaching us that our responsibility comes from God's sovereignty. We're responsible because God is sovereign. Well, after emphasizing our smallness, Paul reminds us of God's bigness. He says in the second part of verse 20 and verse 21, that God has complete and sovereign authority to do what he does. Verse 20, will what is molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? It's a rhetorical question. The point being, of course he does. He's the potter. We're the clay. This is the illustration that Paul chooses in order to help us again remember who we're talking about and who we are in his sight. God has sole rights over us. And as the potter has sole rights over the clay, he has authority to do what he wants to do with the clay. So God has authority to do with us as he chooses to do. Clay doesn't argue with its potter, especially sinful clay that's rebelled against our potter. God is free to make some for honorable use and others for dishonorable use. He's talking about people here. Now, some interpreters suggest that in this language, Paul's referring to the historical destiny, how people live their lives, either honorably or dishonorably in this world. But it seems more likely that what Paul's referring to is salvation, as he made plain with Pharaoh earlier. Some for honorable purposes, salvation. Some dishonorable who will be eternally condemned. Well, this confronts us with a deep, mysterious truth about God. He is sovereign. And because of that, we are responsible. He has created the world to operate in this way. And the temptation that you and I will face is to try to rationalize away the tension that these apparently contradictory truths bring to us. We're going to be tempted either on the one hand to conclude that God's really not that sovereign. Or on the other hand, that we're really not that responsible. But both of those conclusions are wrong. Listen to the way that the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith of 1689 that our church has adopted as our church's confession addresses this antinomy. It does so in chapter 3 where the framers write this. From all eternity, God decreed everything that occurs without reference to anything outside himself. He did this by the perfectly wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably. Yet God did this in such a way that he is neither the author of sin, nor has fellowship with any in their sin. This decree does not violate the will of the creature or take away the free working or contingency of second causes. On the contrary, these are established by God's decree. In this decree, God's wisdom is displayed in directing all things, and his power and faithfulness are demonstrated in accomplishing his decree. Now, if you want to study this more, and I would encourage you to do so, chapter 3 of our Confession of Faith is a place that's worthy of 
guiding you into the scripture, as is chapter 5, which builds off of this as it talks about God's providence. So we see Paul's response to the objection first by making the point that we are too small to interrogate God. And then secondly, by way of the analogy of the potter and the clay to teach us that God has complete sovereign authority to do what he does. In verses 22 and 23, Paul goes on to tell us why God has operated in this way. This is the third part of his answer to the objection. Paul uses a partial sentence in verses 22 through 24 as a rhetorical device to help us understand why God exercises his sovereignty the way that he does. And in the process, in verses 22 and 23, which we're going to stop at today, we see three reasons to this question as why God does it this way. Two of the reasons are intermediate, and the last reason is ultimate. So let's look at them together. Look at verse 22. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? So Paul raises this question. Again, it's to make a point. He is telling us that God does what he does, first of all, to reveal his just wrath against sin. What if he desires to show his wrath? Wrath for vessels of wrath, as he calls them. This is a reference to people who've sinned against God. And in one sense, that includes believers as well as unbelievers. Because all of us as believers were once by nature what Paul calls in Ephesians chapter 2, children of wrath. We all, by sin, deserve God's wrath. But Paul specifically here is thinking about people who never turn from their sin and rebellion. They never receive the grace of forgiveness that is in Jesus Christ. They never receive new life in Christ. Sin always requires God's wrath. Because God's wrath is an inevitable consequence of his holiness. Because he's holy, he must oppose sin. Habakkuk 1.13 says God is too pure. His eyes are too pure even to look upon sin with any kind of approval. His opposition to sin is holy wrath. And he would not be God if he did not have wrath for sin. This is why the scripture tells us that the soul that sins must surely die. Why? Because we rebel against the holy, pure God and we separate ourselves from him who is life eternal and we deserve his wrath and judgment. This is why Paul wrote just a few chapters before in Romans six twenty three that the wages of sin is death. This is why the whole Old Testament sacrificial system was set up the way that it is. So that morning and evening, day by day, festival after festival, season after season, year after year, the people of God in the Old Testament would be confronted with this reality that the wages of sin is death. That sin requires death. It invokes judgment. It deserves God's wrath. God's wrath must be satisfied. It must be poured out on sin because he's holy. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. 
So the first reason that God operates the way that He does is to reveal His just wrath against sin. The second reason is also found in verse 22. It's to reveal His power over all creation. Again, Paul writes, what if God, desiring to show His wrath and to make known His power, His power, to be shown as the one true Almighty God. Paul says, what if He endured with much patience vessels of wrath in order to show His wrath and power? In other words, God's patience in not revealing and dealing instantly with every sinful action and every act of rebellion is a part of His design to reveal His power and wrath in a way that is in service to His ultimate purpose. He intends to reveal His wrath against sin. He intends to reveal His power over all creation. But both of those are in service to the ultimate reason that's given to us in verse 23. In order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy, which He has prepared beforehand for glory. What's the ultimate reason that God does what He does in sovereign grace? It's to reveal His glory. His great glory. The riches of His glory. His glory that is beyond our capacity to fully comprehend. And to do this particularly for vessels of mercy. For those who are recipients of His grace and mercy in Jesus Christ. Notice that He says these Vessels of glory were prepared beforehand. He prepared beforehand for glory. These are those whom God eternally determined before the foundation of the world to save and to do so in a way that manifests His glory. He is prepared beforehand. Do you see that language in verse 23? This is an active voice verb. And it needs to be held in contrast to a passive voice verb in verse 22. Do you see the word prepared in verse 22? That's passive. You know the difference between passive voice and active voice. If I go shut the door and you want to talk about it, you can say, Tom, shut the door. That's active. Or you can say, the door was shut. That's passive. Now, they're both true. But one of them puts the emphasis on my intentional, determined action. And while there's no doubt that God's the one responsible for both these objects of wrath and vessels of mercy, this change in voice from passive, the vessels of wrath were passively prepared for destruction, to active, the vessels of mercy that He has prepared beforehand for glory, it signals something to us. It signals that God's sovereign dealings with those whom He chose to save and those that He did not choose to save is not symmetrical. It's not that God sat before the foundation of the world and determined that He was going to create some to be saved and some to be damned. But rather, it is signaling to us that God deals in an asymmetrical way between those whom He determined to save and those whom He chose to let go in their sin and rebellion. You see, when God created the world, He created it for His own glory, and then He determined in His wisdom and sovereignty to allow sin to come into the world. 
And then in light of that sin, all of His image bearers being conceived as sinners, He determined to rescue some from that sin. He set His love upon them eternally. He gave His Son for them and determined to have them for Himself. And He, he left the others. And what He did for those whom He would save was actively rescuing them. While what He didn't do for those whom He left was leaving them to their own rebellion. Before the world began, He conceived Jacob and Esau both as sinners. And He chose Jacob. And He left Esau. He didn't have to actively do anything for Esau to experience his wrath. Because due to his sin, Esau, Pharaoh, Ishmael, all were prepared for wrath already. In contrast, God did actively have to prepare Jacob and Isaac and Abraham for glory. He had to mark them out. He had to choose them to receive his grace. Otherwise, they too would have been fit for nothing but his wrath. Listen to the way that R.C. Sproul explains this. Sproul writes, There are those who are predestined to salvation called the elect, and there are those who are not predestined to salvation whom we call the reprobate. But the way in which God acts toward both groups is not the same. He intervenes in the lives of the elect to bring them to faith as an act of mercy, an act of grace. The others... He passes over, allowing them to work out their own sinful dispositions, and he withholds his mercy and grace from them. Brothers and sisters, you're a Christian because God didn't leave you to yourself. He didn't leave you in your sin. He chose you before the foundation of the world to be his child. He sent His Son to die for you. He sent His Spirit into the world to reveal the, the life and death and resurrection of Jesus to you to create faith in you so that you would trust in Christ. This is the sovereignty, the wonder of God's grace. What this passage is telling us is that God has arranged His world and operates within it in a way such that His glory will be magnified through displays of His wrath and power and especially through the magnification of His grace. He has created all things for His own glory. Again, this is what Paul writes in Ephesians 1.11, but listen to verse 12 added to it. God is working all things according to the counsel of His own will, so that we who hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. Once you see this, once you bow to Christ in this revelation of the sovereignty of God, you'll begin to see it everywhere in Scripture. You'll see it in Old Testament. You'll see it in New Testament. Since Paul has previously mentioned Pharaoh earlier in this chapter, let's go back and consider how God unfolds the revelation of His glory in the life of Pharaoh. In Exodus chapter 9, verses 15 and 16, before the seventh plague of hail, God told Pharaoh, For by now I could have put my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose I have raised you up, to show my power, so that 
my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Did it ever dawn on you that God didn't need ten plagues in order to get Pharaoh to do what he wanted Pharaoh to do? He tells him, I could have wiped you out at the beginning. I didn't do it that way. No, he took ten plagues to do it. He did it the way that he did it. Why? He tells us. So that his power might be manifested in the earth. So that his name might go forth throughout all creation. In Exodus 10, 1 and 2, God tells Moses before the eighth plague of locusts, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. God displayed his power in the Exodus showing his wrath toward Pharaoh and his grace toward Moses, his wrath toward Egypt, his grace toward Israel. Why? So that his glory might be known and proclaimed from generation to generation of how great a God he is. God's dealings with Joseph in the Old Testament tell the same story. If you know that story, famine was coming. Nobody knew it but God. God could have just given food to Joseph and his family to prepare for the famine, but he didn't do that. He used the evil actions of Joseph's brothers who lied about him and who sold him into slavery in order to accomplish the saving purpose that he had for his people. And when Joseph got to Egypt, God could have made him second in command to Pharaoh instantly, but he didn't do that. He put him in Potiphar's household. And he used the wicked, false accusations of Potiphar's wife for Joseph to go to prison for years, unjustly. And only then did he bring him up to Pharaoh's notice and make him second in command over all of the land of judgment, all of the land of Egypt. And he did this in order to save his people but to save them in a way that great glory would come to him. Joseph came to understand this. And so at the end of the story in Genesis 50 verse 20, after his dad has died and his brothers who are guilty, they know what they did to Joseph and they come before him and they're thinking, what's he going to do now? Dad's dead. Payback time. And Joseph says, don't fear. Don't fear. Look, as for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. They were responsible for their wicked actions, but God was sovereign in it, and God did it the way that He did in order that glory would come to Him in how He saved His people. This is the backstory of Job's life as well. That God's purpose is always working to manifest His ultimate glory. Though Job did not sin, he did nothing specific to invoke the trials and the sorrows and the pain that came to his life. You think about it, he lost his wealth, he lost his health, he lost his children, he lost his friends, his status in society, not for any one thing that he did, but rather, as we see at the end of the story, because God was working in and through even the devil 
in order to bring about glory in Job's life. You know, this is really the backstory of all our lives. I mean, it's the backstory of your life. It's the backstory of my life. We might say it's the overarching story of the whole world and everyone and everything in it. Why did God allow evil to come into His good creation to begin with? For His own glory. He could have prevented it. He didn't. He could have executed Adam and Eve instantly. But He didn't. Instead, He desired to show His wrath and to make known His power by enduring with much patience vessels of wrath who by their sin became prepared for destruction. And He did this in order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy which He had prepared beforehand for glory. That divine patience continued for thousands of years until at just the right moment, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And in Jesus Christ, we have the clearest, most dramatic displays of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. Peter makes this plain in his sermon at Pentecost after the resurrection of Jesus. When in the process of preaching that message, he indicts both the Jews and the leaders of Rome because of their sin in delivering Jesus up. He says this about the Jewish leaders. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Lawless men wickedly murdered Jesus. Yet God delivered him up. He used their wickedness for which they were responsible in order to fulfill his definite plan and purpose. As the early church experienced opposition, persecution for their faith, they prayed and they prayed with this understanding as it's revealed in Acts chapter 4, verses 27 and 28. Sovereign Lord, they said, in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Herod, Pilate, Gentiles, Jews, the, the prayers, Lord, these people were responsible in their sinful, wicked actions against Jesus, and yet they did what God predestined should take place. Brothers and sisters, you see this. We've got to learn to think this way because this is what God's revealed. We are completely responsible because God is completely sovereign. And because He's sovereign, it's always working to manifest the riches of His glory for His vessels of glory, that is, His people. You and I are free to live responsibly before Him with joy and hope and confidence. We don't have to fear, come what may. There's no room in the Christian life for fatalistic hopelessness. On the contrary, we're free to give ourselves energetically to doing His will, what He's revealed, even when pain and hardship and suffering come to our lives. You can be sure. When it happens to you, you're a child of God, that this is working for your good and His glory. God could have done it another way. He's doing it this way to magnify His glory as He brings about good for His people. What a liberating way to live. 
I, I look around, I look at this room, and I, I, you know, challenges, hardships everywhere. Some of you know them and, and you've told me about them and others of you, they're coming around the corner and what do you do when they come? What do you do? You think, oh, God doesn't love me. Things have gone awry. There's no hope. No, no. God is sovereignly weaving your life together for His glory, for your good. He's going to do it. He gave His Son to guarantee it. And we ought to be full of hope. We ought to be full of confidence in Him. Even when we have to cry out from our brokenness, Oh Lord, come and help me. Don't lose sight of this ultimate purpose of God. Why you are here. Why this world is here. Why salvation exists at all. It's so that our great saving God might receive the glory that He is due. Brothers and sisters, let's grab this. Believe this. And live in the freedom that comes from knowing God who has operated in His world in just this way. I know there are unbelievers here. I'm glad you're here. I hope you'll keep coming. You're always welcome to these gatherings. But friend... Friend, you do not have to go on in your sin. You're not without responsibility before God. He brought you here today to be confronted with truth from His Word about your responsibility. And if you continue to rebel against Him, you continue to resist the overtures that have been set before you, the calls that God gives you from His Word to turn from sin and trust the Lord Jesus, please be assured of this. Your sin will be paid for. God's holiness requires that all sin be punished eternally. And either you will pay for your sin when you draw your last breath and you begin to enter into that everlasting horrific place of eternal damnation or Jesus Christ, who has paid for sin, will be your atonement. Trust Him today. Believe Him today. Repent of your sin. Cry out to this God who is sovereign over your life, who's made you responsible, and ask Him to show mercy on you. He delights in showing mercy. There's no reason for you to hesitate. There's no reason for you to walk away today thinking, you know what, I, I, I don't know what I'm going to do, but you know, I'm just going to blame it all on God because He's sovereign. No. He set His Word before you. Jesus Christ came to die for sinners like you. So trust Christ today. Declare yourself to be a child of the living God through faith in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ today. If you trust Him, He will save you. And He will get glory in your life forever. But be warned. He will get glory forever. Regardless. Oh, may God help you to repent and believe today. Let's pray. Our Father, we confess as we look at this passage that these are thoughts that are way beyond our own. We would never think them if you hadn't revealed them. We confess there is within us that which would want to reject the truth of your word that's set before us. And yet, 
by your spirit, you've taught us to trust you and we believe this and we rejoice in your sovereignty. We thank you for the freedom that it gives us, the hope that it gives us in our most desperate days to recognize that though you could have done it differently in our lives, you're doing it this way in order to manifest your glory. Oh, help us to love your glory. Help us to embrace our calling to magnify your glory in all of our trials, all of our sorrows, all of our victories, all of our blessings, that we might live for your glory. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.